Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Sin as far as Rehob towards Labo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahiman, Shesai and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There, they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. Let me pray for JD before he comes to speak. Father God, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you that we have the privilege of hearing it today and of listening and learning from it. And Father God, we pray for JD. We pray that your words would be his words, God, that you would fill him with wisdom and power as he speaks to us. Father, open our hearts and let us receive what you would like to say to us as a community of people and also as individuals today. Amen. As mentioned, I grew up in Sicily. And I'm sure that all of you know that Sicily is famous for several things, but one in particular, and that's mafia. So I don't want to stereotype bitterly, but I do want to give you a bit of a story that's recently happened. Uh, in Catania, which is a fairly large city in Sicily, uh, a church which we know well, a small hall which has been rented, and uh, about 10 days ago, the, the pastor went to prepare the, the hall for the 
for the service, and he discovered that it had been robbed. And so he got in, and all the instruments had gone, all the, the, the mixer, the, the, the PA equipment, uh, even toys for the children, everything had been taken. Um, and it was, it was moving to see his reaction as he was filming, as he'd kind of seen it, and he got his phone out and, uh, and filmed it. And it was, it was fascinating to, to see his reaction, because what he was saying as he was saying, yes, that's gone, that's gone, that's gone, that's gone, that's gone, then he added, we will take this from God as well. We will take this from God as well. And it was much more than fatalism. It was something which evidently he is living in his own deep heart and which changes the way he looks at a tragedy like that. Not a major tragedy, but certainly a tragedy. And then the, the response as a church was also quite amazing. In fact, the local newspaper picked it up as well which is not a small thing for Italy, uh, they organized a fair of sweets uh, in terms of desserts, cakes, stuff like that, in the neighborhood. In other words, within the neighborhood where they've been trying to reach out with the gospel, it would be easy to say, well, look at the way we've been treated. We will respond in the same way. We will therefore pull back, and who knows which of these neighbors actually perpetrated the crime. Instead, they responded in a different way, not with vendetta, but in a very different way by responding with literally a sweet blessing for the community they're in. So they've been robbed, and they are gifting the local community with blessing upon blessing. Now, I've been thinking in the last few years, as I've mentioned, you know, we're talking of a very small percentage of uh, evangelical churches in Italy. The biblical truth of the gospel is very much submerged or totally absent. It hasn't impacted society. As you look at people, the way they live their lives, it is not the gospel that creates culture, but it is history, it is tradition, it is superstition. It's the way that my parents have brought me up. The culture of Italy is gospel-less. But I would be a little bolder, and I would say the, gospel, the culture of the UK is gospel-less. We lived uh, as a family in Sandbach, not far from here, for about five years, and we were under culture shock to see the reality of British culture, which has gone so far away from what the gospel actually teaches and represents. And our burden for Italy, and let me again expand on that, our burden for the UK and our burden for France, where Annette's parents are still living, is to see a gospel-centered culture develop. So the question is this, how does the gospel affect our lives? How does the gospel redefine your actions, trajectories, reactions? And in a context like Italy, in a context like Sicily where the mafia is so present, in a city like Palermo, 90% of businesses, it is estimated, have to pay protection money to organize crime. How does the gospel impact and produce a different way of looking at life? And again, to bring it closer to you, closer to home, how does the gospel define and redefine the way you're a good neighbor? And how does it redefine and define what kind of student you are, what kind of worker you are, what kind of parent you are? In other words, is our culture defined by the gospel? You see, you think of missions and you think, for those more traditional, you think of uh, some remote part of the world and, uh, you know, pith helmets and uh, cauldrons and uh, there's a kind of a, a romanticized vision. But mission is about bringing the gospel and the culture that it creates to people who don't know 
the good news of the gospel. So when you see Donald Trump behaving the way he does, now I'm not going to get into all the intricacies of it, whether you're for it or against it, but when you see the way he acts, the way he acts is determined by his culture. And his culture is defined by lots of things, by the way he's been brought up, by his family. His father was a well-to-do man. Uh, he was in real estate. He was rich. Donald grew up in that context. Donald was proprietor of Miss USA for 20 years. He also hosted and co-hosted The Apprentice for 11 years. He's an aggressive New Yorker. He's a businessman. And that all defines the way he acts. He doesn't just get up one morning and say, and says, well, for the next four months, nobody's coming to my country. Well, you know, I'm sort of, it's a bit liberal, that kind of interpretation. But he, it's, it's the product of the culture that he has. The mafia acts in the way it does because there's a culture which brings it to act in the way it does. The UK is an alcohol-fueled country. Why? Because the culture tells you as a teenager, as a young teenager, you want to be cool, you need to drink. It's the culture that defines very often our actions and our reactions. Now, I could spend a lot of time, and I'd be glad if afterwards we're able to comment on that, uh, over an, an Italian meal of uh, Indian origin. But anyhow, it's a different story. Um, but there are a lot of things within, especially the southern Italy culture, which I know very well. Now we live in Bologna, it's north. We're in, the, in culture shock. But there are some things which are very similar. We have, we have the, the culture of the bella figura. You know, the way you look. What will people think of me? Now you could say, wow, that's a little bit strange, isn't it? You know, we're British, we don't worry about that so much. But actually you do. Because Facebook and YouTube are all about that. What do people think of me? And this kind of culture of worry about what others will think of me, being subject to their perspective, creates reactions and actions and trajectories. You behave in the light of the culture that you have. It's very important what they think of me. And the same could be said of a sense of uh, mistrust with other people. Uh, when somebody asks you a question, very often you don't answer openly. You answer in a kind of mind your own business, this is my private life kind of way. So what are you doing tomorrow? Oh, I have some things to do. You know, that's kind of that covered, not transparent mentality. And there's this kind of culture of mistrust, you know, when you're not really open because you don't trust anybody. Now, I'm sure you can identify with a lot of those things in the context you are. But the question is, how does the gospel affect these actions, reactions, and trajectories? And to kind of think a little bit on that, I've chosen this episode in the Old Testament, which you might be struggling to understand the connection, but I hope it will be a little uh, more evident. Numbers is not your average kind of missionary plug, you know, book of the Bible. It's usually Matthew chapter 28 or, you know, Matthew chapter 9 or something about going into all the world. So what does this got to do with it? Well, it actually does because it's, it reflects the importance of having the gospel at the center of a community and of individual lives. Let's look at it very quickly. A bit of the context, Israel has been freed from Egypt. We won't go into the whole history of that, but right now it's in the desert. It's on its way to the promised land. It's guided by God. There's a cloud by day. There's a pillar of fire by night. The cloud lifts up. The people march. And it's, it's, it's a very clear 
uh, path that they have. It's a culture which is defined by the presence of God. In fact, in the first uh, 12 chapters, we have the, the Levites organized. We have the tabernacle explained, how it works, what it's doing. The Passover is practiced. And there's this clear destination. We're on our way to the promised land. It's very evident that this freed people is moving on to Zion. It's moving on to claim the land that God has promised. God is very central. And here they are in the, in the desert, and they're moving on with this clear plan, with the clear presence of God. God is in their midst, to use an ancient English word. What would you, how would you think that the people would respond? Well, I would say, well, it's great. You know, things are very clear. God is with us. We've got a promised land ahead. Everything's okay. And yet, paradoxically, it doesn't work that way. If you read chapter 11 and chapter 12, you find that the people who should be rejoicing end up complaining and murmuring. Verse 4 of chapter 11, the rabble with them began to crave other food, not quails anymore, not manna anymore. They wanted other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. Actually, this was before, this was the manna. If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Not only are they blessed by God, but they're complaining about it. And that kind of culture of complaining goes on into chapter 12. And then it kind of, throughout the history of Israel, it's there all the time. You've got every reason to rejoice because you've got God in your, in your midst. The presence of God is there. His grace who's freed you. And he's bringing you in the desert, but through the desert towards the promised land. And yet the focus is, wow, it was great back in Egypt. I mean, the garlic down there, it was out of this world. I mean, the, the flies, they just used to last three seconds. They'd, they'd be dead. You know, The garlic was, we want to go back to Egypt. There was a famous Christian songwriter called Keith Green. And he, he did a, an album on this. So you want to go back to Egypt. The idea is, you know, not really rejoicing in the presence of God, not really leave, living in the light of the presence of God, but your culture dictates your feelings and what you want. I want good food, melons, garlic. I want the fish in Egypt. I'm no longer happy with this kind of every single day the same kind of menu. Manna, manna, manna. Enough with this manna. Give us some fish. Give us some garlic. I don't understand why you could ever want garlic, but that's another story. And so in the desert, what happens is that these people, instead of rejoicing, they're complaining. And instead of rejoicing in God's presence, they forget that what counts is God's presence. In other words, in the midst of their journey towards the promised land, they as people of God forget what they're called to do, and that is to worship God. And it's so easy to do, isn't it? It's so easy to let our culture emerge and to not be defined by God's culture. It's so easy to just respond in a reactive way, often discipled by the culture around us, and live in in a sense of uh, dissatisfaction with the fact that we've only got manna. <laughs> and we think, you know, it was great back then when we had loads of more variety and now all we've got is kind of God's presence and faithful daily provision. Before, maybe it was better. And so it's a very sad situation that we find. And this even spills out in chapter 12 against God's man, against God's servant. Verse 3, chapter 12, verse 3, now Moses was a very humble man. 
more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Chapter, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses. And, uh, and then he, he, they kind of, again, it's just lamenting. In Italy, we have this lamenting spirit. You always lament against everything. Uh, you know, we lament about the weather. It's too hot. I mean, I don't understand, you know, why we should lament so much. If we lament so much in Italy, I wonder what you should do here. But that's, uh, you know, that's a, just a, a comment. Um, but there's this kind of lamenting spirit which is dictated by what? By the fact that what I want is melons, garlic, and, you know, good weather, or we want another leader. Not Moses, but we want another one. And so this sense of a culture that is no longer focusing on who God is and what God does really emerges. And so what happens then? And the passage that has been read to us Twelve spies are sent to go into the promised land and to spy it out, to suss it out, to see what there is. So they're to go in to, to observe the land. They're to see if there are any obstacles. They have a very clear charge. They're told to be courageous. They're given a route. And for 40 days, they go and explore the promised land. They come back and they give a glowing report, verse 26 uh, through to verse 29. The, the report is it's a great land. There's, there's people there, but it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and here's the fruit, and it's, it's wonderful. And then they kind of also, in this report, they talk about verse 28 in chapter 13. The people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Malachites live there. So in other words, you know, it's, it's a great land, but boy, is it hard to get into. And here we have ten people who respond in one way, and two people who respond in another. Because verse 30 talks about Caleb, who was one of these 12, and Joshua was with him, although he's not mentioned in this verse. And it says that he silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Which sounds like the statement of the, pre, the, the former American president. You can do it. We can do it. You know, there are obstacles. It's not easy. There are these descendants of Anak, giants. It's not going to be a simple task. But, you know, we can do it. We should go up into, and take the land. We can do it. So there's that culture on the one hand. And then on the other hand, verse 31, the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Can you see the two different perspectives? One is a perspective of hope. We can do it. One is a perspective of the promised land is there. We can take it. And the other is... It's a great land. It would be great, but we can't do it because it's too difficult, because the obstacles are too many, because the people are not going to accept us, because it's not going to be successful, because we're small grasshoppers. See, two perspectives. Let me bring it back down to the culture. Two cultures. You've got the one culture which is believing that it can be done, in a sense knowing it can be done, and you've got this other culture which is but I'm looking at the obstacles, and I'm seeing that we've got giants before us. Can I bring it to you? Church planting. As you look at Chalton, as you look at Chalton, what do you see? Do you see a great land 
well, maybe it's not the promised land, but do you see a, a great land with a lot of fruit to be harvested? You say, you know, there's a lot of people down there that don't know the, the truth of the gospel. It's a great opportunity, great need, great opportunity. And then you think, yeah, but I mean, uh, this is a generation when you talk about God in your culture and people already switch off. You even mention the name of Jesus and they've already understood what you're about to say to them. In fact, they say, we don't believe in God, we don't believe in Jesus. Because they've got such a preconceived cultural perspective on the whole thing that they don't even want to listen. So how do you respond as you look out? As I look out to Italy, 99.5% of the population have no knowledge of saving grace. I see a land of great hope and promise, but I see a lot of giants. I see a lot of obstacles. I see it's really tough to break in. So the question is, how are we going to respond to that? Are we going to say, we can do it, or are we going to say, we can't do it? Now let me bring that a bit further down. I believe that the difference between the two perspectives is all about your culture. And little more even specific, is the gospel defining your culture or not? Is your culture defined by the presence and centrality of God, or is it your ideas, your convictions? And as we go very, very quickly through chapter 14, you'll see that there are, again, two reactions which emerge. Chapter 14, verse 1, that night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So you've got the grumblings. Notice the second type of culture. Here's the first type of culture. We don't deserve this. You know, we should go back to Egypt. It's far better down there. And the second culture which now emerges, you've got these four people, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb. Verse 5, Moses and Aaron fell down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. Now notice this, underline this. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land. Have you noticed that? I got an amen there. Wow, that's great. It's like beginning Italy almost. <laughs> if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, underline, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Do you see the difference? You got these guys who are quaking because they're blocked by what they see, because as they look out to this wonderful promised land, all they see is obstacles, giants, and their smallness. We're grasshoppers. And then you've got these other people who see the same scene, but beyond the giants, they see a greater God. And they realize that they can do it because God is leading them, because God is in their midst. And so they then proceed to intercede before the reaction of the people who, literally, verse 10, they want to stone. The people want to stone Moses and the others. And the glory of the Lord appears, and so... Moses intercedes, and he intercedes and says to God, he reminds God of his own promises, verse 13. 
Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians, if you destroy them, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them. They will tell the inhabitants, uh, the inhabitants of this land about it. They've already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, or in another translation, ESV, in the midst of these people, and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of cloud by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land. He promised them uh, on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now, may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger. This is citation. Slow to anger, bounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of this, these people just of you as, as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. And so you have God who, in response to the, this intercession, he decides to forgive them, and yet, on the other hand, he says, these people, I forgive them, but they will die in the desert. They won't see the promised land. That sense of unbelief. Now, Italy is full of churches where people who are not believing for the promised land. They're not willing to get on with the task of reaching out into missions. Why? We're too small. We don't have enough funds. We don't have enough resources. We haven't got the time. We haven't got the energy. Instead of seeing the glory of God, way beyond the greatness of the obstacle, they just get blocked. In other words, their culture is defined by their past, by their feelings, by their fear, which paralyzes them. A gospel-centered culture sees God at the center, not our fears at the center. And then there's this tremendous verse 24 that I just want to kind of stress. It talks about Caleb. And it's, it makes the difference. And it says, Because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Did you notice that? Caleb has a different culture, has a different spirit. There's something within him which is different. And he follows me wholeheartedly. We need a lot more Caleb's this morning. We need Caleb's in Italy. We need Caleb's here in Manchester. We need to see people who are going to live in the light of the gospel, in the light of the fact that God, despite what we deserve, has entered into our space, into our history, and has changed things so radically that we could now have lives which are redefined. A gospel-centered culture sees God at the center, not me at the center, not my fears at the center, not my culture at the center, not my tradition at the center, not my thoughts at the center, but it sees God at the center. A gospel-centered culture sees everything redefined. We long to see Italy where people have the gospel which redefines the culture. Instead of mafia and an omerta, a kind of mafioso attitude, instead of uh, reacting with a sense of closure, instead of reacting with lack of trust, instead of responding by reacting in vendetta, we long to see the gospel redefining culture. When people have, see another car crossing in front of their car, instead of responding with rage, which I know is a problem over here as well, I've seen it in these last few days, I long to see the gospel redefining that as well. The way you use your spare time, 
I was talking to my son last night. You know, he's, he's busy, he's working, and uh, it's like it's difficult to find time. But the gospel needs to redefine your whole life, not just Sunday morning, not just an activity, but redefine everything. When you see God as central, when you see you're on a path to the promised land, everything redefined, reactions, actions, trajectories, despite the descendants of Anak. And finally, the gospel-centered culture is one where you're n- you know f- clearly that you're moving towards the promised land. You've got a sense of perspective. You know where you're going. Now, you know there's one far better than Caleb, and he's called Jesus. And Jesus was sent to save. He saw the promised land, the fruit, and that's us this morning, the fruit. And he saw the giants. The giants, the descendants of Anak, were in the shape of a cross, in the shape of Roman rulers, in the shape of people who would change within a few days, and from saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, to crucify him. And yet he was moved by another spirit, like Caleb. He followed wholeheartedly, and he accomplished the will and the glory of the Father at the highest cost, his own life. His life was all defined by mission. (laughs) He came on a mission to seek and to save that which was lost. The good news is that. It's not that you need to be better and make a better effort and try and do your best and you might get to heaven. The good news is that despite the fact that you always fail, that Jesus came to do all that you could never do. And he came to seek and to save you. And he went forward in his mission, and now he leads us to victory. On Monday of this week at 4 a.m., 4.15 a.m., my father passed away. He went to glory. He was 86 years old, 50 years involved in mission work. It is so reassuring for me to be able to face this giant in the fact that God is central. Death is not central. My father's life is not central. God is central. God redefines what has happened. God redefines the tragedy of a mother who's now left as a widow. It redefines everything. It redefines an experience so traumatic as death. It redefines the perspective on a life lived. What did he live for? Well, he lived for God's glory, and I'm so grateful for that. But I ask you this morning, is your life centered on the gospel? Is your life centered on God? Is your life centered on Jesus? Because the three really are all the same thing. It's all about who is central, who is defining your life. And if it is, how is that redefining your everyday? You have a week ahead of you by God's grace. How is the gospel going to redefine the way you use the rest of this day? What you do, what counts, what aspirations you have. This is the best news possible. You think, you know, a lot of people out there, they're questioning what's life all about. You know what life is all about. We're on a journey to the promised land. We have a God who's there, who's central to our lives, and who provides daily manna, all that we need. And we have the privilege of being with Him in mission. As you move into Cholton, we will pray for you. As you move into Cholton, pray for us in Italy. We've got lots of Choltons there as well. We've got lots of descendants of Anak. But we have a God who is far greater. Let's pray. Father, I just pray this morning that by your Spirit, you might do a work of grace in our lives. Thank you, Father, for such a significant episode thousands of years ago, and yet which has relevance today 
in our context, in our day and age. And I pray for all those who this morning are facing the prospect of difficulties, challenges. It's not easy, and the descendants of Anak seem so powerful. Lord, I pray this morning that you might not give them more resolve and more strength and more perseverance, but that you might give them a vision of Jesus, the one who is the greater Caleb, the one who lived and who died and who was radically sold out to do your will for your glory. Father, that you might be central in our everyday, in our choices from the most apparently banal to the most significant, but that we might really seek your face as we live with the gospel at the center of our lives. We pray this for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.